Today, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'll be taking verse 24 to the end of the chapter. It's a, it's a longer narrative, but it all revolves around Saul troubling Israel. Listen as I read God's word. Then the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. The people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil. It took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priests said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was this day, was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. 
So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkishua. The names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahanom, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Children often display a tendency to hide their guilt. Did you do that? Did you color on the wall? Did you break that? It wasn't me. A, a certain grandson of mine who will remain nameless, <laughs> when corrected about standing on top of a table, didn't respond. It was something of a protecting of himself from his guilt. And when uh, asked again to get down from the table, he said, my ears don't work very well. (laughs) Well, the tendency of children is not just the tendency of children. There's a tendency in all of us when convicted of sin to react and the immediateness of that in, a, in defense. No, I didn't do that. It was somebody else. My ears don't work very well. And in this passage, we find Saul doing something very similar. He requires a rash oath of his people, an oath that has very detrimental consequences on him on his son, on the whole nation of Israel. And uh, he never shows conviction of sin or repentance. I said earlier that 
Saul will serve as something of an anti-type to a response to sin in our lives. He serves as, a, as an anti-type in that the consequences of sin often prompt self-protection. But faith, and this is the conclusion of, the, of this message, that, that, this, that an anti-type leads us to, faith responds to correction and conviction. Faith responds with humble reliance upon God's grace, with an admission of sins and of failures, with a, a repentance before God and man. And it's that conclusion that this passage will lead us to. By way of introduction, I want you to remember that all of the book of 1 Samuel, there is this longing for a king that is expressed by the children of Israel. It's a longing that is, is ultimately and always pointing to the perfect king, Jesus Christ. And yet the children of Israel settled and demanded for a king like the nations around them. And in earlier passages, we noted how the Lord gave them what they wanted. And there was, a, there was an element of, of wisdom. There was an element of discipline that is being exercised by God in doing this so that they would see the consequences of their request. You made this bed, you lie in it. Even that has a merciful, merciful direction for it so that they would come to realize the king they needed was not the earthly king that they requested, but was the king they had rejected, the king who was God himself. Saul was not the king after God's own heart. The Lord will raise up such a king in David, but as we'll find, that he too has his own sins. But until David and until Christ, King Saul will rule as God's anointed. And as we have noted before, we will note again that his reign and his decisions repeatedly reveal a heart that is bound up in pride and selfishness and in superstitious use of, the, uh, of God himself and of his ordinances and of his worship so as to advantage himself. And today's passage is no different. It adds to that picture of worldly leadership providing an anti-type that presses on us our desire for that great king, Jesus, and, and our response to a conviction of sin. When we closed last week, we noted in verse 23 that the Lord had saved Israel that day. The, the next portion that I'm taking all together in this narrative can be summarized by Jonathan's words in verse 29. Saul troubled the land that day. Saul troubled the land. And it's that trouble that will lead us to that conclusion that, that the consequences of sin often prompt self-protection. But faith responds in repentance. So let's look, first of all, about how Saul required a rash oath. This is the beginnings of... of uh, 
uh, of the sin in this narrative, it stands in the context of all of his life. Verse 24 says Saul placed the people under an oath and that that oath brought distress upon the soldiers. And that distress takes two different forms. One of them is physical and is, is a natural conclusion. He required them to not leave off their pursuit, not leave off the attack for anything, not even to eat. They were to fast all of that day until nighttime. Now, a fast in and of itself all day is, is certainly a, certainly hard, but now put it into, into the narrative. These were soldiers who were chasing after an enemy and fighting against them. And we find out that it was from Michmash to Ajalon, 20 miles that they pursued the Philistine soldiers that day, all without any food. Now, uh, there's a at least a, a foolishness about such an oath because he weakens the fighting force by doing so. Without food, without refreshment, they were less able to, to pursue and to fight and to carry out what they were were called to do that day. But add to that, and this is where, where Saul's, uh, Saul's approach to outward religion reveals its, its ugly head once more. Add to it that Saul binds them with an oath before God. Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. An oath is a very serious thing. We take, we take promises very lightly today. You can give your word, you can make a promise, you can enter into a contract or a covenant, and it seems like you can, you can break that word so easily today. But biblically speaking, an oath is very serious. And... Uh, and Saul invokes this serious charge to accomplish his own agenda. And it comes through in the way he phrases it. Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And that stands in contrast to what Jonathan had done just earlier that day. And the passage highlights that. Jonathan, in faith, humbly made himself available to the Lord. And when God acted, Jonathan says, this victory belongs to God. The Lord has saved Israel today. The Lord has given victory, not to me, to Israel. And that's the conclusion of the, of the matter. The conclusion of that paragraph is that the Lord saved Israel that day, but Saul swoops in to take credit for this change of events and to take glory for himself by avenging himself, avenging myself, as he says, oh, excuse me, my enemies. And he puts the soldiers under oath in order to do that. 
Now, an oath is given for a variety of reasons. An oath is, it does bind uh, an individual to, to, uh, to, to give strength, to follow through with a promise in a certain area. Uh, it, gives, uh, it gives something of, a, uh, of motivation and, and encouragement to follow through. But there is a binding character to that, a seeking of God's, God's favor and of his direction. And it's uh, once more it just it, it comes out in this context of Saul using this ordinance of God for his own advantage. Much like he had done in offering sacrifice to God, without waiting for Samuel to come, he takes that to himself, taking advantage of the ordinance of God for his own purpose and advantage. And here is an oath that he takes again to himself for his own advantage, binding his soldiers to obedience. And there is a rashness because of the, of the weakness it brings. Their, their victory is diminished. But there are further consequences that the rest of the text calls to your attention. Let's go and I'll just work through the text and call your attention to each of these consequences that fall. The first consequence is that Jonathan violated the oath. Saul had rashly required this of all his soldiers, but Jonathan wasn't present. So without without knowledge of the oath, Jonathan came across honey in in the woods. He took, he ate, he was refreshed. And yet the Saul had bound all of those under his authority to this oath. And therefore, Jonathan violated it. He came under the, under the, uh, the obligations and the curses of it because of Saul's action as the leader of Israel. And then when Jonathan did this, someone in the ranks called attention to Saul's oath. The second consequence comes right on its heels because Jonathan, I'll put it this way, vents his frustration. He replies, my father has troubled the land. Jonathan saw the effect of the oath. He had been refreshed by the honey and even calls attention to that. And he sees the soldiers distressed and weakened by the the foolishness of the vow. And he says, wouldn't it have been better to eat along the way this day. There's, there's been opportunity to refresh yourselves from the plunder, from, from this honey. And yet, my father has troubled Israel today. And while there is truth in what Jonathan said, he does voice his frustration in a way, as Gordon Ketty observes, in a way that speaks against the king, speaks against the Lord's anointed. And in doing so, weakens and offends the one that God had lawfully anointed as king over Israel. This will have consequences as well. Jonathan 
replies in his own frustration and gives voice to his own sin in this occasion. As do the people, which is the third consequence is the people give rein to their desires. The day finally comes to a close. Night has come. They, they have an opportunity now to eat. There's plunder in front of them. They rush upon that and they are so famished by their fast that they take the animals, they kill them, and they eat them with the blood in the meat. And that is, that is very significant because uh, God had forbidden them from doing that. He forbidden them from eating meat with blood in it. Uh, the blood is the, is the sign of life, of, of living in all living beings, Blood of the animals was a sign of the atonement, which foreshadows Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament period, the Lord had, had said, you, you shall not eat meat with the blood in it. And the soldiers do exactly that. They violated God's law that prohibited just this very thing. Saul did try to rectify this. He provided a place for the, uh, the animals to be slaughtered, for the blood to be drained as the law required so, so that they could eat. He built an altar to the Lord, presumably to seek forgiveness for this sin. But there are two factors about this that, that reveal not only the children of Israel giving rein to their desires, but Saul's refusal when confronted and given opportunity to repent that he does not. One of them is that he chastised those who are under his authority. He chastises them, calling them as dealing treacherously. Now, they were certainly responsible for what they did. God had forbidden them to eat meat with the blood in it. But Saul was responsible as well. As the, as the leader, as the king of Israel, there is a responsibility that falls on those who are in leadership. And in this occasion, he does never, he, he never recognizes that he was at least partially responsible for this occasion. His oath set his soldiers in a place where they were vulnerable and where they might likely give rein to their own desires. But you see no remorse in Saul, no repentance on his part. Now, he does have an altar built, but uh, it's striking here that it says this is the first altar that he has, that Saul built. And here's where, uh, where I've said before, you, you long for something more for Saul. You long that an altar for repentance of sin would characterize the entirety of his life and of his reign and of his rule. But no, the first occasion for him to build an altar was so that he could correct his soldiers who had sinned, who had dealt treacherously, pointing away from his own responsibility. 
they say, the conclusion is developing here throughout this passage. The conclusion of conviction of sin that in, from a worldly point of view, not just in leadership, but in all of us, our tendency is to defend ourselves, to deflect, to deny. Where faith responds in humble repentance. Let's go back to the consequences. Fourth consequences is that Saul loses God's favor. This has been in the works all along. Samuel has said that when he took to himself the sacrifice that God was taking the kingdom away from him. But there is a continued aspect of that in this passage. When Saul sees that uh, there is an opportunity for them now, having refreshed themselves, there's an opportunity to, to go ahead and finish the fight. He proposes that they would, would immediately go and fight through the night and continue to pursue the Philistines and, and finish it. And the, uh, the soldiers say, do whatever seems good to you. And contrast that with the way Jonathan's armor bearer responds to a leader who is full of faith. Jonathan's armor bearer says, I'm with you. I've got your back. I understand what you're doing in God's, in God's name. I will fight with you. And the, the soldiers, when Saul proposes a, a, a Another initiative, it's like, I don't think this is wise, but do whatever seems good to you. And even one of his priests, presumably one of the priests that he brought in, Ahijah, it was something of, of his man, even this priest puts up something of a caution sign. Uh, so let's draw near to God here. This is his way of prompting Saul to stop and ask for God's direction. He had started to earlier in the day as they were going out to battle, but Saul had interrupted it. He had stopped the inquiry of the Lord. And so uh, the priest says, let's draw near to God here. And so Saul, not having asked before, or, or he asked before, he interrupted, he didn't wait. Now he asks, God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But as verse 37 says, God did not answer Saul that day. God was silent. Now, understand that God gives a variety of answers to our prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, sometimes he doesn't answer immediately. And it takes wisdom and context to interpret each answer. So what's the context here? Well, Saul couldn't be bothered with God earlier. Couldn't be bothered with sacrifice, even though commanded to wait for it. 
He couldn't be bothered with God's answer, even though he had begun to inquire, but uh, we got to go here. He couldn't be bothered now. He'd made up his mind. Let's, uh, let's go. Let's pursue, pursue the Philistines. It was the break that was put on by the his, uh, his priest that brings him to inquire of the Lord. He, uh, he had, it showed no interest in what God had to say. So God didn't answer. God, God's silence is ominous. He's made a proposal for action. His soldiers are waiting, and God doesn't answer. Which leads to another step by Saul, which is rash and foolish, another consequence I'll describe it here as, as trying to save face. If God's not answering me, somebody must have done something wrong. And by God, we're going to find out who it is. It assembles the soldiers to find out whose sin it was that God would not answer this day. Who is the culprit? And his, his vehemence comes through with another rash promise. We will find who it is. Even if it's my very own son, Jonathan, he shall surely die. Then in a dramatic scene, lots are cast and Jonathan is chosen. Jonathan is revealed and Saul caught in this rash vow says to Jonathan, what have you done? I ate the honey that I found. And Jonathan, Jonathan submits to the seriousness of what his father is doing. So now I must die. And Saul confirms this with another oath. God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Gordon Ketty calls this a chilling comment on the frightful state of his soul. He was, in fact, the guilty party. Saul, not Jonathan. There is a, a certain guilt that Jonathan had that we've identified, a certain uh, 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 acting without knowledge that uh, has brought a certain guilt upon him. But Saul was the one who had bound the nation to that oath. Saul was the one who had rashly committed himself to this course of action of killing the perpetrator. Saul was the guilty party. As Ketty concludes this, he says that um, that Saul that, or that this action with Jonathan brought to the light of day the fact that God was angry with Israel not because of Jonathan but because of Saul. He desperately tries to save face rather than repenting of his sins. And the people are beginning to understand this. And the final consequence that comes is that Saul loses the people's respect. 
when he swore to kill Jonathan, the people rise up to intervene. And they swear by God. Jonathan has acted with God this day. Through him, God has acted to bring this deliverance. By God, not a hair of his head will fall. And they took Jonathan out of Saul's hands. And we'll find in later chapters that Saul says that he began to fear the people. He was diminished in their eyes. His sin had consequences and lasting consequences. You see that as, a, as the, the, the very last paragraph, it seems like a catalog of people and enemies and battles that they went through. Uh, and by God's grace, uh, the Lord was not done with Israel, and he used Saul, and there were some victories. But note the last verse. The consequence of Saul's actions meant that out of fear of the people, he withdrew that day, he went back to his house, and the Philistines escaped to fight another day. The last verse of this chapter says, There was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. This entire sequence of events served to to humble Saul and to, to humble the nation of Israel. As I said earlier, the people had demanded a king and They are seeing what a worldly king is like. Samuel had warned him of the practical outcome of that. The king is going to demand your valiant men. He's going to take them from you. He's going to take your money. But there are other consequences, other impacts that go far deeper. Here we see a faithless king, unfortunately. A faithless king who acts selfishly, seeking his own name and his own glory. We see one who proudly misuses God's name, his worship, his ordinances for his own advantage, for his own agenda. And when things started to go bad, he doubled down on his rash oath. And he continued to swear falsely in a way that brought his own son under condemnation. And he failed to ever recognize how his oath, how his actions were responsible for this outcome. And we acknowledge the sins of those under authority, but Saul never acknowledged his own sins. All of this heightens that longing for the godly king that God would raise up. We will meet him soon in the person of David. But as you know, David was just a forerunner of the perfect king of kings, Jesus Christ. Because David is still just a man. David sins as well. But but the difference between David and Saul couldn't be made plainer than this passage. 
When David was confronted of his sins, he repented. He repented specifically. He repented humbly. And Saul hid his sin. How tempting that is. It's tempting for any believer to try to hide and to cover over our sins. It's a, it's a, it's a natural reaction to defend ourselves. And that's almost the default mode without faith. It's magnified leadership. Because leaders have power and position and opportunity to defend themselves so that they cannot be touched. Faith prompts leaders and all of you to repent as sin is uncovered in your life. Faith responds with humble contrition, with grief over acknowledgement of sin. There's frank admission of that. There's repentance before God and man. And I pray that the Lord would grant such grace to each of you all the days of your life and to me. Let's pray. Lord, be merciful to us as sinners. Prayer, God, that you would, in your grace, sustain us. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned to our own paths. We all have that self-protective tendency we confess and admit and pray, O oh God, that you would forgive, that you would give grace to be humble in the consequences and the context of confrontation of sin. O oh God, this anti-type of soul strikes deep to our hearts. We're thankful, O oh Lord, for the the way that it drives us to the perfection of Jesus Christ the one who knew no sin and yet became sin for us. It's on the basis of his mercy and on the basis of, of his sacrifice that we can come and repent and pray knowing that you do forgive. You promise to do so, to give us Jesus, the righteous one, as the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take up the end of Psalm 51, singing both 
personally and as a congregation, uh, repentance and dependence upon the Lord. Psalm 51, Selection D. Please stand to sing. 